culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Jacopo, welcome to Risky Conversations. Please introduce yourself to our listeners and let us know a little about yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm Jacopo. I'm calling from Torino, Italia. Actually, I'm from Rome. And my job uh, after a couple of decades in IT, in software development, has slowly shifted into helping companies having a better governance and better processes when they are involved in knowledge work in general. So basically, everybody who is involved in non-serial production, creating new products, new stuff, that's basically a potential customer for me. That's all. Okay, very cool. So uh, your experience in, in software development, what, what, what kind of software did you develop? How long did you do that for and how can you switch it away? Uh, well, the, the first time I, I was paid to develop software was in 1996. Actually, I, 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 that, that was a nice one. I was like uh, building a, a re- reflex speed test for bus drivers selection in the, oh, wow. in the local okay. transportation company. Yeah, it was uh, quite, I was like, I was just 17 years old. So it was uh, a nice engagement. Uh, and then uh, mainly my main experience with software has been in content management. So publishing content. So uh, publi- publishing companies that, had, that needed to publish content on on the web, so basically articles, blogs, and blah 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 blah, blah. and maybe sometimes on a very large scale. But that was my main. That was my main. The the main way I earned money with software, but it was with my third company, and I had two before that, and I destroyed both of them. <laughs> and <laughs> the first one was about uh, multimedia production, like streaming videos and streaming audio. At the time, it was back in 2003. There was no YouTube. There was no public and free streaming services. Right. Public, public so to say. And uh, the second one was about a booking engine, something like booking.com, Expedia, something like that. Again, at a time where the market was much more open and less concentrated into just a few big players. But again, I destroyed both of them and I learned a lot of lessons (laughs) about entrepreneurship that time. But the third one went much fine, went much better. (laughs) Oh, very good. Very good. So when you say destroy them, uh, what what exactly did did, did you do? What kind of mistakes did you make? Oh, yeah. uh, Way much, so way longer before than learning about fragility. I learned mm. fragility that fragility can kick in from sideways. The first mm. company was uh, basically, uh, an, uh, I mean, my partners were two people. Uh, I was uh-huh. the web engineer, and another one was a, a audio technician, and the third one was a video editor. Okay. And the video editor also owned much of the assets. And I realized that when you have a partner which is too strong, basically it's mm. like a no partner because basically you are at their. So you're an employee, 
right, yeah. Right, right, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. And especially the, the best part is that when <laughs> when when that too strong partner becomes addicted to drugs or stuff like that, then you are really mm. fucked up. And right, right, right. All your company stuck up in in a in a single point of failure. And right. I, that that's what that was the first time I learned that one single point of failure has to be conceived and detected end to end. So basically we were strong uh-huh. on the technical side, but then what about the people who are in? Or what about the the situation and also the human situation that was uh, that that company was built upon? So basically right. I had to know how can you and also I wonder how can you somehow know in advance that people are gonna get mm. junkies. <laughs> yeah, basically, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean right. It's a shot in the dark. You don't you never know, especially when success starts to come their way. And easy money means sometimes easy access to entertainment that normally they wouldn't consider, right? Yeah, but especially when I, I at that time I had nothing. Basically I come from a family which has barely I mean, I've been one year when I was eleven, I've been one year homeless with my mom. And oh, that wow. was, yeah, I mean, so, and that was uh, a, a key aspect for me to, to jump on that chance because actually that partner was offering me his own assets and I could get those assets for free be, because mm-hmm. of ownership. And basically it was a chance that I, that, I, that I wanted to ride. I was just 22 years old and I decided, I, re- I perfectly remember that I was lucid when, mm. I, when I thought, even if it get if it takes 20 years to fix all the mm. mess up, mm. I will I will only be 40 years old. Actually, right. uh, it it took much shorter to fix the mess up. <laughs> I mean, Good, glad to hear it. Right. And I I learned so much. And basically, yeah, you said it's a shot in the dark, but that was the first, but unfortunately not the last lesson about the fact that we shouldn't we should design our partnerships and our business to mm. be less than a shot in the dark. I mean, right, right, right. We at least have to attempt to try it that way. So it's kind of like, it reminds me of the concept of if you're working with somebody who has all that control, it's kind of like being in a room with somebody with a gun. You, ideally, you want to be the one holding the gun, right? You don't want to be the person in the room with somebody else who may not even be emotionally stable who has the gun in their hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And especially because if the gun is handled from a rational point of view, that's mm. predictable. But it gets right. much, much worse when basically you are throw, tossing a dice every day and see how what's the outcome. How it goes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what did you learn in your second company? What happened in the second time? Uh, that's, that's uh, again, I had no money because basically I, I, had de- I hadn't developed enough from the first company. Uh, mm. One of my projects was an open source software that was going quite well. Uh, it was, mm-hmm. was crowdfunded at the times when crowdfunding was not a word. I mean, basically, I woke up in the morning finding people from USA or from Japan or from China that had mm. donated me money or contributed mm. with code. It was nice. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a free open source booking platform. And... Mm customers one of those sponsors all of a sudden decided to ask me for uh, exclusive development of the platform and i decided that it was not the case i just i so i proposed him to build up a new company and rewrite the platform from scratch mm. 
just 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 to so to incorporate every everything I had learned so far developing the first right. one into the right. okay. uh, and this story uh, let's me uh, let's me speak about fragility from two points of view. The okay. first is that whenever you have something, the, the first thing I learned afterwards, ex post, is that mm. when you have when you have an asset, when you have something working, when you have a platform, a digital platform that works, mm-hmm. writing scratch is is a too easy temptation for developers, and mm-hmm. instead wasting all that value that you created is mm-hmm. is a, again it's a shot in the dark. I, I mm-hmm. love this expression that you use because I mean. It, it depicts many of, of the situations uh, that I want to talk about tonight. Um, mm-hmm. So the point is, basically, when you have a platform, a digital platform that is working and is, and is generated revenues, you should work on an evolutionary basis on that, on that platform rather than running one from scratch because then you end up having two time, two, twice as much to maintain and twice mm-hmm. as much to place it on the market and twice as much to care about, but only right. goal, which is the, the new one. And right. I mean, it's not the proper way to scale. Second, <laughs> second, second, again, for the sake, for uh, being caught by my goal to earn powerful partnership because I needed to compensate for my lack of resources, Right. I ended up I ended up handling uh, leaving too 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 much space to my partner and and basically I realized in a couple of years they were basically buying our own services for a cheaper price and so and right. they were not developing business enough and while mm-hmm. I was supposed to care about the technical side they were supposed mm-hmm. to care about the business development but basically they were developing their own business rather than ours. And mm-hmm. so, uh, but this time my sort of uh, escalation of commitment was much shorter and I gave up in mm-hmm. just a year and a half and I said, okay, fine, if that's the way, I prefer to be alone. And that was mm-hmm. the first time I got back to full-fledged freelancing. And I see, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what did, you, what did you learn in that instance that was critical to let you know, like how did you catch on? That they weren't living up to their obligations. Was there signs, or was you just initially you were giving them too much benefit of the doubt? Uh, actually, initially, I just, I just, they just got uh, too big of an equity. Mm. So, so their equity was too, too big, and 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 so I was basically powerless again. I was oh. again with a gain uh, against my head. I was at that time 25 years old at that point. But then, okay, that was the last time I decided to somehow trust partnership rather than designing partnership. And with the I third see. company, it went much better. After three years as a freelancer, um, mm-hmm. at that point, I was starting uh, earning a reputation about how to manage software development projects in Italy mm-hmm. and a little mm-hmm. bit across Europe. Um, and so... Uh, I, I started to capitalize on the visibility I had by, by speaking at public conferences, which is mm-hmm. one of the best way to get optionality that I ever met in my lifetime. And so uh, after three years, one of my customers as a freelance 
decided to in, so somehow they invited me to join their company to to, okay. to join their, their to become a partner okay. but at that time i was stronger than years before and i mm. decided that okay it's fine to get to get equity about a company especially when you don't have to pay for it so right, basically right, right, right. any any free option is you have to get it and so that's why that's what that's the way we ended up agreeing so basically i had close to free options close to free equity of the of of the of that company and i i started working as a partner in 2011 and Mm -hmm. for five or six years i stayed in that company but now four years ago i got back to full freelance for freelancing, I sold my share and now I'm on my own again. I mean, I mean, I on my own, looking for new adventures. Of course, of course. So when you said you wanted to design a partnership, what do you mean by designing a partnership? What, is, what does that entail for you? Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I mean now. Uh, I, especially in, in, uh, in 2019, I received uh, six or seven proposals to to join a partnership in a new company or an existing company and again i i basically started to think uh, about joining a part joining a company joining a partnership mm-hmm. as a as a as a problem that you have to solve uh thinking about not losing rather than thinking about how to win okay. and, and so it's it's and it's it's interesting how my perspective shifted since 20 mm. years ago when I was looking mm. for ways to win when I was mm. in following a vision when I was uh, all my decisions to join a partnership were dictated by enthusiasm now my my perspective about joining a, a, a partnership is all about enhancing my optionality without giving mm. in without mm. giving without exposing myself or or by exposing myself for as much as I can afford right so you don't blow up yeah yeah exactly I, I don't want to find myself again in the situations I found myself in 20 years ago or so and so I started looking for for example one of the key heuristics is are they looking for someone who knows how to do the things that I, I know how to do, or are they looking for me? Because uh-huh. it's me they're looking for. Right. Okay. Because if you like Jacopo and you want to become a partner of Jacopo, then you know that Jacopo can act the way he acted so far. And that's mm-hmm. the way uh, he made himself attractive for you. So why mm-hmm. should he change by now? Why should Jacopo change the way he conceives, the, the way he manages the time, the, the business, the money, and etc.? If you like Jacopo nowadays, this is how I am that you are liking today. So right. I want you to buy and I want you to uh, pay or to get Jacopo. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically you buy the... I want to buy... I want to be bought... Uh, mm. Optionals included. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I understand. I understand that exactly because uh, what ends up happening is um, I, I do freelance uh, on the side. I, I have a full-time uh, software development job as an engineer, 
And then on the on the side, I do development for you know various uh, companies. It's usually a combination of business and software, but I, I approach it the same way you do in the sense that when they propose things to me, and I tell them, okay, based on what you're asking for, here's what I would uh, recommend you do, and here's how much it's going to cost. And they come back to me and say, oh, I can get somebody somewhere to do it cheaper. I said, great. Then that you're looking for a specific task to be completed. You're not looking for the task master in the sense that what I bring to the table. So if, if that's an easy substitution for you, then you're treating me like a commodity instead of a luxury, and we can't have a partnership that way because then that always ends up in a situation where I end up doing more work and getting less compensated for it, and they just take advantage of that. So I think you're coming at it from the exact same uh, frame of reference, just worded in a little different way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Mm. And that's actually exactly what happened with my third company, which was basically looking for my labor as a partner. But right. instead, I was trying to have a strategical role. I want to, I don't want, I, don't, I mean, I, I also gave up on my, uh, we agreed on having a compensation for all the partners, but then, okay, mm. I, I, I thought, I give up with the compensation. I don't want to get paid on a regular basis. I only want the, the value of equity to grow up and maybe right. some revenue share for specific projects and blah, blah, blah. I want to work only on a value-based agreement Mm. But that was not enough because the mindset of the other partners was all about sharing labor, like companies mm. being a sort of a of a family, which is about sharing the endeavor. And 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 and, and while to me a company is just a tool to mm. maximize uh, to maximize my chance to earn money, mm -hmm. to deliver a value proposition to the market, and to mm. get that value proposition and knowledge in exchange of money. So Perfect. the point is that if you want, if I, now my main heuristic is that if you want to make a partnership with me, basically you're buying me as a strategic asset because I bring right. in network, because I bring even, even just very, very volatile, very, very fluffy style, like uh, f fluffy stuff, like, like uh, the way I think. I mean, right. if you love the way I think, then you can be my partner and I can be yours. If you don't like my way of thinking, why the hell are you asking me to become your partner? Right, 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 right. No, that makes sense. It's, it's kind of the difference between, um, so you and I share this common thread in the sense that what most people do is they look for a job description, right? I need, this is the job description. Find me a person yep. who could do this. Yep. And we're thinking along the lines of, I not only can do that, but I can also add value by letting you see other perspectives on your goal to say, hey, you're trying to achieve X. Have you thought about achieving X from this Y position so that you can achieve something much grander? And along the way, everybody gets compensated uh, for uh, all the value they end up creating, not just for the job description and the job title you gave me, but for the overall pie being enlarged, right? So we're not making a medium pizza, we're making an extra large party size pizza and that's because I'm very good at making pizzas. Let's work together and let's see if we can grow this pizza. And then more importantly, let's see if we can open a pizza shop so we can sell lots of pizzas. Whereas yeah. most people are like, I just want a guy who can cut slices for me. I'm like, well, that's great. Go and uh, go online. I'm sure you could find somebody somewhere who is willing to take $9 an hour or whatever the, the, the low rate is. And they will do exactly what it is you want from them. And you, you can also reduce your expectations for the quality of their insights as well, because that's not what you're paying for. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And this okay. also, let me add something about the, the thing that you said about being commoditized. Because mm. actually, I want to make clear for the people who are listening to me and to you making this conversation, is that having mm. this conversation is that, yeah, there is the chance that our job can be commoditized and that my role in the company from the labor point of view is not that valuable. I don't want mm. to, I don't want to think about myself any better than I am, okay? Mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. again, again, then if you ask me, I'm not proposing, if you ask me for a partnership, then you know that you're buying me as a strategical partner and I want a voice in everything, mm-hmm. no scope, no silo, no department. I want to be caring about everything in the company end to end as long as it creates value. That's the point. Perfect, perfect. No, no, on that front, we're, we're, we're matching exactly the same in terms of philosophy. So I wanted to ask you a question. What is your, because uh, you know, for, for our listeners, I will, we'll have the Twitter handle for Jacopo on there, but uh, it, it, the, the thing you point out is you're um, uh, author of a thing called Extreme Contract. So for, yep. for, for our listeners, what exactly is an extreme contract and how did you come to uh, to label it that way. What exactly is a regular contract that's different from what Jacopo brings to the table? Okay. Um, so uh, I will start from your questions and I will give you a, 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 the background afterwards if you're interested in too. But extreme contracts, extreme contracts are contracts which are uh, more suitable than standard contracts for knowledge work. In the sense they... The minimal definition is that they minimize the time required to build trust between the parts. Okay. Uh, so basically, what the, the point is that when I was a, an entrepreneur in the, my third company, I was growing up very tired of making quotations and uh, spending very long time writing down quotations and contracts and the bureaucratic part. And I realized that basically our customers were divided into two groups. Okay. A very large group of customers who had decided to stick with us. They, they were aficionados. They were like uh, caring about the way we were delivering software. And they were uh, trusting us a lot. Most of the feature or change requests were made on the phone or on Skype, like we are talking now. And everything was very informal, even when the budget at at stake was very, very, very large. And Mm -hmm. even the the bare existing of Sorry, the bare existence of, of a little bit of trust was making everything so smooth and mm. everything was happening for real, only caring on both sides of the table to the value delivered. Okay. On the other hand, there was a very small group of very uncomfortable customers, very nasty negotiators, mm. very... Uh, they were requiring us to spend much time uh, 
days and days uh, meet in meetings, in conversations, in quotations. Ah, yes, but how can I know that you will deliver this and that by that time for that fixed budget in that amount of time and blah, 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 blah. And so we were basically losing much more time mm. in negotiating with them rather than earning the money they were supposed to bring into the house. Okay? Okay. Okay. And so uh, I, I started to researching the uh, into the characteristics of these collaborations of the of the two classes of collaborations and i distilled i started experimenting with a few non-standard contracts and i is isolated something a few tra- tra- uh, traits of the okay. agreements that i liked most okay and I, i just asked myself what if we bring all these traits up to the to the to the top what okay. to the top notch we okay. what if we bring all these eight seven or eight traits to the maximum that we can conceive and mm-hmm. i decided to call this class of contracts extreme contracts exactly okay. uh, exactly as like uh, ken beth ken beck the inventor of extreme programming which is a school of uh, software development Mm-hmm. Uh, called that style extreme programming because it basically collected everything that was working better than classical project software, software project development. Um, and basically, he just wrote his book, which is called Extreme Programming Explained by saying, well, what if we bring everything that we know about good software development to the maximum level and we make it, we call it extreme programming. So basically extreme contracts is by analogy, the same reasoning applied to knowledge worker, knowledge worker agreements. Okay. When I say uh, standard contracts, I basically mean fixed price contracts and time and material contracts, which are uh, definitely non-suitable for knowledge work for okay. certain reasons. Okay. Uh, basically fixed price is i mean, when you are, uh, I mean, you are a developer or you are, you are working in IT as far as I understand, right? Yeah, I'm a software engineer, yeah. Yeah, cool. So the point about software, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've always seen how fixed price agreements in software projects always mean that the volatility of requirements, because in, just for the audience, we can say, we can just say that in software development, the requirements of the projects are very, very, very volatile. They, they tend to change along the way much easier than in traditional industries. And Absolutely. every time this happens, fixed price contracts mean that the risk is unilaterally shifted on the yep. supplier side. Yes, yes. Which yep. is completely, uh, even if we want to be... If we want, we can be just caring about ethics, just mm. as, as, as if it was just. But <laughs> right. uh, yeah, <laughs> so even if we want to just care about ethics, we can say that this is not fair. Right. But, but even if we get rid of ethics, even mm. if we want to, and I don't want to, but even if mm. we want to, we have to admit that fixed price contracts in the end means that the supplier being exposed to that volatility will add up buffers on their quotation. Yes. yes. Which is basically is 
means that if everything goes fine, you have just stolen money. Mm-hmm. But since usually stuff is not uh, won't go fine, it's mm-hmm. like buying an insurance policy paid by someone else, which is the customer. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's uh, that's a very paradoxical situation in which. Uh, someone is paying for the protection of the other side because of the damage that you could get from the first side. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very dysfunctional. It's very yeah. dysfunctional. No, absolutely. I agree with you because what ends up happening in that regard is that the the person, So, if, and I've, I've, I've watched this unfold a thousand times in front of me. So if it's a young developer, they price themselves too low because they want the business. They yeah. end up being overworked and they hate their job. And the next time they overprice, and when they overpriced, now the business who comes in new feels like they got ripped off. And then on the third iteration, the, the, the software developer who undercharged and not overcharged is meeting somebody who underpaid and overpaid, and the negotiation becomes really nasty. It's because of exactly what you said. All the sides are trying to manage their risk, and somewhere, somebody is paying too much or somebody's doing too much work. There's never really a really happy medium. So I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, and I witness it all the time, and most people... They don't understand the, the, this mechanism that's involved, and that's why they don't know how to really price themselves well. So I get everything you're saying. I, I feel it in my bones because I, I live it yeah. every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, everybody who has developed software for real in the real world without mm-hmm. the protection of a big institution or someone else's credit or uh, in a position of monopoly for any given reason know mm-hmm. that it's like this. Now, the next uh, thing I want to say about traditional contracts is that time and material contracts are another mm. kind of dysfunctional beast. Mm. Because basically, uh, from the risk point of view, basically we're saying just as, as, as the same that we can say about fixed price, just on, on, on exchanges, uh, something like uh, swapped uh, risk. So basically the risk in time and material is just Every, all the risk is on the on the customer. So mm. if the volatility of the requirements that we mentioned before in software development is real, and we know that it is real, no matter what the planning fan say about what you, how you can reduce volatility in software development, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. that volatility in, so in time and material contracts, it's all on the customers because basically if every, everything makes the project delay a bit, mm-hmm. that delay is, means that the workers, the suppliers is going to work longer and that uh, longer time is basically translated into more money from the, from the customer. Which is, again, unfair. Sometimes the risk is inherent, it's intrinsic, and we don't want one of the party to, to pay more or less. But, but even worse, to the point that, to me, time and material contracts should be forbidden by law. <laughs> I mean, I really mean it. I really mean it. Time and material contracts should be forbidden by law for two reasons. First, in general, by principle, any other aspect being the same, in mm. Latin we say ceteris paribus, okay. any other aspect being the same, the slower worker gets paid more, which is, I mean, well, mm-hmm. it, it makes no sense. But, but also, uh, time and material contracts, it's 
gives no incentives for innovation. Mm. If me and you, we are com- in competition and I discover some way to get paid. So, sorry, I discovered some way to deliver the same kind of software that you are delivering, the same kind of value that you are delivering in five days. And up to yesterday, I had delivered that kind of value in five days. And now I know some way that I can deliver the same value in three days. As mm-hmm. as the competition is not aware of this, mm-hmm. I won't be delivering it in three days because it would mean, again, keeping all the other aspects the same, that I will I will get paid three fifths of your of our previous revenues, and so mm-hmm. there is no incentive to make it shorter. Obviously, obviously, wait. Frequently, frequently opposed counter argument is that yeah, but if you deliver in a shorter time, you will be able to serve more customers, and you will be perceived as a better as a better supplier and blah blah blah. Yes, I know, but the point is that that's because there are other incentives coming from another side of the market and not from the cost of, from the from the contract itself so mm. it leads me to the to the to the truth that i want to be using something which has the same upside of time and material contracts that means i want to work i want to work as short as possible to deliver the same value but i mm-hmm. want to get an incentive for doing that i want right. to my customer to give me an incentive because if I deliver in three days, it's basically when we use time and material contracts, we are saying that if I deliver you the same value that I could deliver in five days and I deliver it to you in three days, you're going to pay me less. What? I want to get paid more. I don't want to get paid less for delivering the same value in a shorter time frame. So for the audience that may not understand what software development is, uh, there are a few techniques that I love to use that I've been I've, I've been loving for years and years. I started working in a, in a developing software in 2003 by, let's say, just to give you an example, to write a part of the software to test the, I mean, I was developing an application. Well, mm-hmm. it's fine. So I had to code the programming code to make that application to work. Mm-hmm. But I was also developing a part of the software which was testing automatically the first one, okay? Mm-hmm. So basically I had automated tests for the real application. The automated tests were, were not delivering value for the customer because basically they were, just, they were needed just on my side to make sure that the application was truly delivering the value that it was intended to, to do because bugs are there and everybody who has worked with the, with the computer, even not understanding anything about how software is developed, know that bugs can be annoying and, and somehow hinder the value that, should, that the software is supposed to, to bring into the life of the users, okay? Right. So right. the point is, when you are, when you are delivering your software and spending your time to write automated tests, just to give you an example, mm-hmm. if you are working on a time and material basis, then you are basically authorizing your customer to question the way you are spending your time while you are working. Right. Because, hey, Hey, Jacopo, I paid you to deliver features, not to write your own test to make sure that the software that was supposed to work effectively 
actually works. This right. is not the way I was meant to spend your time that I'm paying to you. Right. And I mean, and I mean, if you let them pay for your time, that's the bare minimum that you can get that they discuss the way you spend your time. Yep. Yep. They got plenty like of on you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but what was the problem with the market? The problem was that if you a young developer, as you said, starts working on a fixed price, okay? Because no one is trusting them enough mm-hmm. to, to work on a, on a time and material basis. Basically, yeah, you are a rookie, you are a newbie, so you don't, I don't know. I, again, it's a problem of trust again. So mm-hmm. you say, okay, fine. So give me a price, give me a deadline, see you there, and you'll be delivering the software and I will pay you the money. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. That kind, so... As, that young developer, as we already noticed, uh, as we already pointed out, is basically ass- assuming all the risk. Okay, fine. How does how do they feel? How do they try to get out of that risk assumption? Is is shifting to a time and material contract. So basically, they're saying, as soon as I, as my reputation will be good enough. Mm-hmm. I will be starting invoicing my days, my weeks, my hours, so that everything bad that can happen, I don't have to negotiate fixed price contracts and lo- losing all that time. I work as, as much as I need to work, and it's fine, okay? Mm-hmm. I will get paid for five days, five weeks, five hours, no matter how long did it take. And the customer mm-hmm. is going to accept that fee, no questions. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. But at that point the customers start defending themselves mm-hmm. and they start questioning that the way you spend your, you, you, you spend your time and, and, and they start uh, somehow. Uh, have you ever, in Italian, we have a very uh, typical word which is, which is umarel. Umarel is a, is a word describing those old retired men which are looking at work in progress, staring at work in progress in the streets with, uh-huh. uh, with the hands on the back and uh-huh. say, ah, yes, at my times, I, was used, it was, I, I, I used to do that, that, the same operations with that with, uh, uh, in the streets with much better quality, something like that, okay? So, right, right, right. Yeah, okay, fine. So I want to avoid mm-hmm. that Umarel effect in which the customer starts evaluating not the value of my delivery, but the intrinsic quality of the way I work, of, right. the, of the decision I make. I mean, you are a software developer, so you make many architectural decisions per day, mm-hmm. and you want to be sure that only the value of those architectural decisions is questions, and not the way you work, and not the way... Yeah decide to read to 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 somehow use one hour to read an article online to learn a new technique which may deliver tens of time the value that you were used to deliver yesterday i mean the 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 skill the skill set and the impact of skills in your profession is very very volatile and Mm -hmm. one single article can unlock a complete new branch in your in your skill set and make make your of yourself uh, a, a much worthwhile developer 
Yeah, no, of course. So in the, in the sense, what uh, Jacobo here is uh, is uh, parlaying to our younger listeners who may be in the business of software development is that what 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 people really need to understand when you come into this field is that your first little foray into the business, if you're you know starting out, and I get asked this question all the time, and I always tell them like your your fundamental computer science knowledge, you have to grasp that because that doesn't change very often, and when it does, it very rarely changes, and it changes very small amounts. The stuff on top, that changes every minute. Like every day, oh, here's a new database and here's this API thing, whatever. All that stuff, that you can easily learn once you understand the foundational stuff. But what, what Jacobo here is talking about is that what you want to do is people do not want to pay for you avoiding their system from going down. So when you, when you write tests, which is what Jacobo was talking about earlier, people say, well, I, I don't want to pay for the test. I want to pay for the feature. You're like, that's true. But that's like saying, I want a car that goes really fast and I'm telling you that's fine, but I can't just give you the car that goes really fast unless I test the brakes at those high speeds. Because if I don't test the brakes and you're driving it that fast and you slam the brakes and it doesn't work and the car crashes, I'm the one who's held accountable. But the driver only cares about the speed. They don't care about the brakes until the brakes fail. And so this is the tension and the relationship between how the developer spends their time and what the person paying for it is willing to pay for and because there's mistrust on both sides of the table because of past experience and, and some there's a lot of bad developers out there too. We're not and Jacobo and I are not presuming to say that all developers are ethical and moral and good and deliver value. No, there's a lot of developers who are absolute um, uh, yeah. scum of the earth as they come. Yeah. And they do rip people yeah. off and they, they make the life for the rest of us very difficult because they create this nasty reputation because there's no regulation around it. There's no real way to tell who's good, who's bad. So everybody comes into the relationship initially with a lot of mistrust. And so, you know, me and Jacobo vibe on this front. And, and for your younger uh, people listening to this stuff, if you're really interested in getting into the software development side of the business, understand this is the business element that we're explaining to you. But the business element of it is completely tied to the technical aspects of it. And so when you read an article and somebody says, yeah, we used to do this, but now I figured out this really cool way to do something faster. And all of a sudden, a whole class of problems gets solved by default for free. That one hour that you spend reading that article is worth 15 hours of code had you done it the wrong way, right? So the branching uh, logic of where you make those decisions are pertinent to your experience. And that's what Jacobo is talking about here is because what you may want to do, and sometimes this is what I do. Sometimes I go into work and nothing is working. My brain is not firing. I, I forget how to do a proper for loop. I don't know what a switch statement looks like. And I'm like, why is nothing working? And I realize, you know what? I just need to go for a walk. I close the computer. I put on my headphones, play some music, go grab a coffee, talk with a friend. And all of a sudden, my brain reboots. And it's because we're not serving French fries, right? We're solving problems. And most of the time, the kind of problems we like solving are the problems that don't exist with solutions yet. We're creating new things. And along those ways, what Jacobo is really highlighting here is how that tension between what somebody's paying for and what you're actually doing has to be resolved and and his his philosophy and mind jive perfectly because what we're talking about is um you tell the person you should know how much something is going to take in terms of how much time it's going to take you to build it so you know your cost that's your floor but you should also look at it from the point of view of what's the value that this person is going to gain from my software that i'm going to develop and how can i get my optionality to be increased so i can participate in some of that upside while at the same time, ethically respecting their boundaries so I don't overreach, but I also don't want to be a doormat so they walk all over me. Yeah, basically, when you buy, when you buy a fridge, 
You don't mm-hmm. care. Uh, most of the time, people, when they buy stuff, they don't care mm-hmm. about assessing the exact costs for the producer. <laughs> they, right. will, they just evaluate the value against the price. Yeah. And instead, when yeah. it comes to knowledge work, not only in software development, my friend, also in many other uh, fields, people all of a sudden start questioning the cost, which yep. is completely wrong. And it's, uh, it's, it's a duty of the worker, of the professional to defend themselves from this distortion, this dysfunctional behavior. Because when you are a photographer and you shoot the photographs that makes the Life magazine cover uh, for 50 years and blah, 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 then no one should say, ah, yeah, but it only took you like two 20 seconds. minutes, two <laughs> yeah. seconds. How, how, how yeah. can it cost that much? Yes. I mean, yes. uh, I, I know by listening to this podcast that I can swear and I say, well, fuck you. This is worth <laughs> millions for you. And I deserve, actually, not, it's not that I deserve. It's, I'm not claiming. I'm just saying that I will give you this photo for a fraction of the value I'm generating for you. And that's fair exactly. enough. Because if I exactly. give you 100 and I get 80, that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, this brings us, all, all of us knowledge workers, mm-hmm. we face a huge problem about making the quality of our work to show up long-term mm-hmm. and short-term. Because functionalities in software development are the quality that can be assessed in short-term. But I want that software platform to be maintainable and to be sustainable in five, in five years, for example. And yep. I'm pretty sure that in your experience, you saw many software platforms being destroyed by so-called technical debt, which is a way uh, by adding software features in a non-proper way, you end up having a big ball of mud, which is not maintainable. And the cost of adding next features rise up too much because there is a exactly. sort of dependent uh, accumulated cost for mm-hmm. adding previous features that is impacting the cost of following features. And yeah. this is a model. Have you ever heard about the market for lemons? I have not. Ah, the market for lemons is, uh, uh, it was the title of a paper by George Akerlof in okay. the 1970, which describes uh, a nice, uh, what happens when you have uh, information asymmetry between buyers and sellers. So basically oh. in knowledge work and software or in uh, design or in my own work, the problem is that the, only the seller knows the quality of what is of what they are selling. The buyer actually is a little, a little bit blindfolded. And mm-hmm. um, like, for example, when you, there, there's a nice metaphor the, the market for lemons is the metaphor based on the, on the lemon being a car that is found to be defective uh, only right. after it has been bought, okay? Right, right. So, suppose buyers cannot distinguish between a high-quality car and a lemon, okay? Okay. Then they are only willing to pay a fixed price for a car that mm-hmm. averages the value of a good car and a lemon together, okay? Yeah. So, basically, yeah. just to mitigate the risk. Yes. But sellers know whether they hold a good car or a bad car. Yes. And given the fixed price at which buyers will buy, sellers will sell only when they hold bad cars and they will leave the market when they hold good cars. Yep, yep, because the prices don't match up, yep. Exactly. So basically, good cars are kicked out of the market. Eventually, yep. as enough sellers of good cars leave the market, the average willingness to pay of buyers will decrease. 
since the average quality of cars on the market decreased, leading right, to right, more right, right. sellers of high quality cars to leave the market through a positive feedback loop. Okay? Yes. So yes, yes. we're talking about a paper in economy, and I know that we are speaking to an entourage which may not tolerate the fact that we are quoting economists. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, sometimes yeah. they get things right. They get things. It's, it's not all bad. <laughs> actually, actually, the point to me is that I don't care. I mean, it's mm. uh, uh, I don't care about assessing the truth of this model. I only mm. care about making this model think about the way I can. First, convince the customers to buy my knowledge work, mm-hmm. but even better, how to get myself independent of this reputational factor. If you depend, as, as, as Nassim Taleb says somewhere, maybe in the bed of Procustus or some, somewhere, I don't remember where, but if you depend on reputation, then you're fucked up. <laughs> yep. yep. And yep. this is the problem with knowledge work. Basically, you buy an architect, you make your kitchen redesigned by uh, an architect because it was suggested by someone you know and you trust about. Or because he's a very, they are a very famous architect. Or you hire a software developer because he has a good reputation based on their GitHub profile, on their public activity, uh, the way they speak at conferences. But Still, what if we can make agreements that render ourselves independent from our own reputation? Excellent. And this is the key point about extreme contracts. I want my contract with my buyers Mm -hmm. to be value-centered in a way that they can only pay or get out of the agreement if they show up being dishonest i they realize i am the, not not honest uh, if we end up realizing that the project in itself has no value and blah 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 blah, blah. so m- extreme contracts is a family of agreements which are basically saying why don't we maximize the speed by which we create trust rather than maximizing the financial performance of the agreement because the okay. financial performance of the agreement in knowledge work is a byproduct. Yes, yes, agreed. As soon as you start, I mean, not just because you are giving trust as a gift, but because it's uh, because trustworthiness of your counterpart has been proven, then you can start exploring. In knowledge work, you need to start exploring options to solve a common problem, a shared problem. You don't want to follow a pre-made recipe. You don't want to follow a pre-made plan because pre-made plans don't stand confrontation with reality. When you develop a new software, you end up with a software which was not the software you meant when you started the project. When you start start restructuring your, redesigning your kitchen, usually Mm. the kitchen you get in the end is not the kitchen that you were planning to have when you started. Right. So uh, every time, I mean, I help companies, I told you, my, my job is to help companies who are developing new products, digital or non-digital, and I help them somehow caring more about doing the right thing rather than doing the thing right. Okay. So efficiency mm-hmm. is less of a problem when you don't know exactly what to do. 
okay? Because if you yep. do the wrong thing efficiently, basically you are more efficiently marching to hell, okay? So, <laughs> fine. So, in that situation, which is by definition upfront, is clear that it's an exploration context. Mm. How the hell am I supposed to rely on the fact that we have a fixed roadmap and I'm going to help you in a fixed set of steps one by one? Mm. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how it would be unprofessional to assume that if something worked for the previous customer, will work the same way for the next one. Yep. And so I want this uncertainty to be reflected in my agreement, mm-hmm. but, but knowing, so I mean, it's all about optionality, basically. Okay, so building robustness, embedding robustness, robustness into, into the, the agreement itself. But also, I want to make sure that the money is not the only dimension we can negotiate along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see? So yeah. people usually, as you mentioned before, start asking for discounts or asking for, for a buffered quotation mm-hmm. just because they are managing the risk of the agreement, the inherent risk of the collaboration mm-hmm. via money mm-hmm. through, through the, through the uh, negotiation of higher or lower quantity of money because money is one very crisp unit of measure. Basically, one dollar mm-hmm. is one dollar for you and for me, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, if I feel that I'm, as the volatility of the, of the project is, can somehow hit me, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether I am the customer or the supplier, it depends on the co- kind of contract as we saw a few minutes ago, then mm-hmm. I start negotiating about money because I want to add up money to raise the expected value of my collaboration. Right, 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 right. But the point is that instead, what if we somehow disentangle the money from the risk? And so we describe the value of the agreement and I get paid a given price, which is related to the value that I'm delivering to you. Mm -hmm. And then we find some other way. We Mm -hmm. try to make the risk more explicit, and we try yep. to address that risk. Yep. I will give you an example because it's too it's too much theoretical. If you mm-hmm. want, I can give you an example, a very quick one. Yes, please. Yeah, go for it. For example, uh, there was a a customer of mine. I was I had worked with, for them on very lightweight projects, and they had just started to know me. Uh, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of a one of the most important automotive produce, producer in Italy, uh, mm-hmm. it was their customer. They were, uh, my customer was, they were uh, um, an advertising agency, communication agency. I don't know what's exactly the English way to, to tell it. Oh, that's uh, good, that's good. That's uh, okay, fine. Okay, and uh, let, just let me get this chance to ask sorry to all the audience for my English, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not native speaker. So, okay. Nice. So there was this, my customer was this agency and their customer was the automotive huge uh, company. company, enterprise. Yeah, okay, fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So after years of collaborating with them, the automotive company decided to uh, uh, issue, so it's just somehow to indict uh, a tender, 
okay? okay. Some, some okay. way to reselect their suppliers. And so okay. uh, even after, even though uh, the collaboration so far was, has be, had been very good, my customer had to somehow submit their quotation, their project, their presentation of the company for the tender, okay? Mm-hmm. So they wanted to somehow revamp their image and they were attracted by the way I was I had talked to them about management and and the way you should carry on projects and in knowledge work. Basically they were okay. they definitely they were a knowledge work based company. So okay. okay. So they asked me for some help. And okay. okay. So the goal was to win the tender. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be constrained by the amount of days that I could promise to them, okay? I, I didn't want to somehow sell myself on a time-based uh, agreement. Like, ah, I'm going to work with you for one day, two days, or for the next three weeks up to the deadline by which we have to submit the, the our quotation for the tender. I want to work mm-hmm. as much as I want. I cannot grant you, I cannot guarantee that you will be winning the tender. Mm-hmm. And I know, though, that if you win the tender, this is going to be worth millions of euros for you. Yeah. And I know that the opportunity cost for me, if I work for you a few days, I don't know exactly how many, it's still a capped loss for me that I can stand with, okay? Yep, yep. Okay, fine. So given this scenario, I decided to get, to make this agreement. I asked them to pay an upfront, very, very, very small uh, amount of money mm-hmm. so that I could work as much as I had, I would decide until the mm-hmm. deadline for the tender, Okay. Okay. So it was like okay. three weeks and it was, I, I was the only one in charge to decide whether I had worked for one day, two days, 10 days. I decide mm-hmm. how, how, how much did, will I work? Fine. Okay. Okay. But once the tender is won, mm-hmm. then I know that my collaboration with you has been worth millions, millions of dollars. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. And so I can get, let's say, uh, 0.0.5% of that amount of money and yep. still get a nice amount of money for mm-hmm. the four days that I ended up working for them. Okay. So basically, I worked four days. I get a very small refund for the expenses, let's say. And so I capped my loss because mm-hmm. four days, I don't work every day. So basically, they could have been three days for me, okay? I, have, yep. I, I, I take care to have a very sparse calendar in my work, okay? Because I yep. think the three days are optionality embedded in my agenda, in my calendar, okay? Mm-hmm. So I only had the chance to say, okay, fine. Those four days would be free anyway. Or I can work for them for a small refund, which is fine. Capped loss. This is time lost, I know, but still. But I was basically buying for a fixed price a uh, multi, multi times 
multi, a, a multiplier. So I, I don't know how to say. Basically, I was buying an option to earn much more money. So that's yep. the point. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it happened in the end. Okay. So <laughs> the point is that they never negotiated the price because basically mm. they were saying Jacob is working close to for free mm-hmm. in in the beginning, and then he only wants the money when we will be sure that we will yes. have much yeah. more money to pay him. Yes, agreed. And I mean, agreed. and I mean, that's exactly what we've been talking so far in this in this podcast. So basically, yes. I was saying that knowledge work was very volatile in its effort, very mm-hmm. volatile the result. The value mm-hmm. was very clear, though mm-hmm. subject mm-hmm. to an alia, uh, very um, uh, sub, uh, so somehow subject to a random factor. Okay. Yes. Yes. Cool. That random factor was acknowledged in the agreement, but not by reducing the amount of money that I could get on a fixed price contract. Yes, yes. No, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, it's rare for me to agree with people so wholeheartedly as I've been doing with you because I have a similar approach. When I talk to clients, um, uh, so again, like yourself, I use the filtering mechanism. Is this person paying for the work or is this person paying for the uh, value that the work is going to generate? Once yeah. I know that, and then we do it this way, I say, look, it's, we're, we're basically a hunting party. We're all hungry. We're about to go out and we're about to go for a hunt. If we hunt successfully, not only will all of us eat, but we will have mu- uh, a lot of food for the next three or four weeks so that we can all keep feeding our families and enjoy the feast. So here's what I'm going to do for you. If you bring me a part of your, your, your hunting group and you allow me to strategically help make some decisions in terms of the approach we take, then what I will do with you is just like you, I will take a smaller amount of money for the, for the work up front and I will backload all the payments for the percentage of the, the meat we gather after the hunt. And people like that for two reasons. One, they know that if they don't end up getting the value that they're hoping for, that they're not overpaying you. So they're happy right off the bat because you have skin in the game now. And yeah. Two, two, when they do get that money, they don't get greedy anymore because it's found money. It's like, well, without me, we couldn't have you know, hunted exactly. these five buffaloes. And they love yeah. it. And yeah. that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you mentioned it. Skin in the game is the key enabler for the agreement to start. And value-driven quotation is the Mm -hmm. key aspect for the for the distribution of money, of merit, of of, Mm -hmm. to share that value and to somehow Mm -hmm. resolve upfront any the so-called positional negotiation annoyance. Because yes. what you mentioned before, the way you say, no, I want to sell this to you for $1,000. No, I will give you $500. And then we know that we'll meet somewhere in between at, mm-hmm. at $750. Yep. That's time wasted. Yep, that's, 100%. That's hindering the relationship. Because basically, mm-hmm. after you told me that you would sell one th- at $1,000, mm-hmm. that you will sell, basically, you are... Losing your face, reducing the suitable amount of money that you are accepting to sell at. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So yep. and and pride is a very strong driver for people, and I don't want to trigger people's pride. I want to trigger <laughs> people's wallet, which yes. is different. They are often entangled, but they are not the same thing. Never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%.
and so and the the best part is what what I did to to win the tender was basically yeah. they were they had years and years of collaborating uh, of collaboration with that with their customers with the with the automotive enterprise and I said well why don't we instead of because they had ideas okay they had I oh, we want you to we want we want to include some some aspect of project management that uh, we we heard you were mentioning during your other projects and I want you to add these two slides and I said wait wait I know you like what I told you before but here the point is to tell them what they want to hear and what they will like you doing in the following years. And so, mm -hmm. do we have do we have the mail or the the phone number of the people that will be deciding about the standard? And they mm -hmm. said no. Okay, fine. But do we have the phone number of all the people that will be somehow around the decision makers, the influencers, mm -hmm. and they said yes, because basically they knew everybody that was high enough in the company to decide about what, who will be the next communication and advertising agency that they will, will be using. So, fine. Okay. Okay. So I decided to have a few interviews and I said, mm -hmm. and I just asked those seven people, what did you like most about my customer service in the past years and what did you like least in the past seven in the past years working with them and basically all the interviews were basically filled up of terms expressions and even linguistics that were basically the first candidate to end up in the slides in the presentation because so mm. that those decision makers could reflect themselves in what they needed and what they wanted most and what they needed them to keep. Because you know what? Most of the part that they were about to change actually were about the stuff that the, the automotive company liked them most for. Okay. Which is, okay. I mean, basically they were about to destroy their own value. And instead, <laughs> if you treat this problem like, a, have you ever heard about Lean Startup? Where I you basically, oh, okay. Uh, so uh, it's it's a good topic for today because basically it's a, it's a whole movement about validating the features of your product or your service and in this case the service or the product was the presentation for the tender mm -hmm. before you build your own product and you build your own service. So okay. basically, I made those interviews to prototype the real needs of the market, let's say mm -hmm. the market, in this case, the market was made up of seven influencers and three decision makers for the tenders. Uh -huh. But still, the point is that every time you start by asking your customers what they want and you help them make clarity about what they want, basically, mm -hmm. you are enhancing the optionality of your collaboration and reducing the need for you to waste effort mm -hmm. just by just trying to guess what they really need. Right. Right. You right, follow right. me? You follow me? I follow you. So I follow you. Instead of so we are again, we are again back to the shot in the dark. Uh, uh, did you say it like this? Shot in the yes, dark? Yes. It was, yeah. yeah. So basically my customer was a, was ready 
to have another shot in the dark by preparing a quotation to present at a tender deadline that was based on their own assumptions of what would, would be needed or not. And I decided, wait, we can just ask. And it's no crime <laughs> it's asking. Thing. No, so of course you not. just ask and then the, the, you're going to get the, the, the scope of the exploration that still, we won't get rid of the exploration part, but the of scope course. of the exploration gets much narrower or more narrow. I don't know how to say, but whether it gets narrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and so the, the chances to succeed are so enhanced that it's, it can go close to 100% of, of, of certainty to win. And actually, that's what it happened. We won the tender, and I got my share in the huge amount of money that they could rely on at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's funny about this is that all of this ties perfectly back to um, uh, Rory's book, uh, Alchemy, when he talks about the concept of if you can help reduce uncertainty in somebody else who you're helping, they will almost always give you the business that you want. Because the, the idea of shot in the dark, what most people forget about it is it's a shot in the dark for everybody because they don't know how good you're going to be. They don't know how good because they may have a great idea for a product and they think, okay, this is going to be great, but I don't trust you because I don't know you. So you're a shot in the dark. And then you're like, I don't trust you. You're a shot in the dark. But together, there's also a bigger shot in the dark, which is you may have a great project. You may hire a great developer or a, a knowledge worker in this case, and you guys may deliver all those things. And yet the market of the person who may be the customer that buys it, they don't like it. There's uncertainty everywhere you look. Yeah. And as long as you approach the, the solution the way you've been describing, which is to say, look, I see that you're about to go into this business and you're about to uh, help them secure something, but they don't know what they're trying to secure. So there's a level of uncertainty. Let me try to reduce some of that by talking to some of their influencers. And those guys are also in the same dilemma because they're looking at it from an uncertainty point of view saying, well, there's five companies that are going to you know, issue tenders to us. I don't know which one's going to be good. If we pick a bad company, then I'm held accountable. And then my boss says, hey, you pick this company. This company's garbage. You know, you're to be blamed. So everywhere you look, there's uncertainty. And what you did instinctively from what I gather from the story you just told is you tried to go around that and say, okay, look, even though it's a shot in the dark, if I just look up for a second, there's there's some stars and those stars are reflecting some light and I could see. Perhaps I can't see 500 feet in front of me, but I can see in front of me that we're standing at the edge of a cliff. So maybe this is not the best way to go. Let me try to turn left and see if there's a better path to go that way. Because perhaps instead of swimming in the, in the, in the, in the uh, you know, falling off the cliff, swimming across the water, if we just look left, there happens to be a bridge over there. Let's walk across the bridge. And most people, from what I gather, and I think you and I instinctively get this, is that they're so afraid of asking a question because it makes them feel like they are, oh, you're supposed to be professional, you're supposed to know everything, that they don't ask questions and they basically make assumptions and their models are built on these assumptions that are not tested in reality. And when they go to make their pitch, it just doesn't go anywhere, right? So what you're doing here is you're saying, hey, let's make a model, not on my assumptions, but on my customer's assumptions. Let's see what their assumptions are. And that way, at least whatever model I can come up with is a lot closer to what they're willing to pay for than it is the other way around. And this is a strategic part of the thinking that you and I bring to the table whenever we discuss business opportunities with customers is don't look at the work as to I can code this, 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 and this. Look at the work of should we even build this thing? What if there's a better solution to this problem? What if there's a better solution that solves this problem for free 
but also opens the door for six or seven different things that you haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, exactly. So basically, uh -huh. the assumption is that the only one in charge to define value mm -hmm. is the customer. Yes. And the only one in charge to define the cost is the supplier. And so mm -hmm. if I want to spend my time raising my cost to write automated tests for my software platform that I'm developing for you, those mm -hmm. costs are on me. And you don't have to pay for this, for those, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But you don't want, if you don't pay for those, then you cannot even question them. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. See? Because the skin yep. in the game for that for those costs, if it's mine, then it's mine. <laughs> Fuck right. you. Go away. <laughs> this is my test. This is my software right. platform. And as long as it works and it delivers the value that you're supposed to to get, yep. which is an open question, and I could be an idiot and I could be failing completely. Mm -hmm. This is a chance. And I want to acknowledge for you the risk that the, this chance is true, but mm -hmm. then we can discuss the value, but the costs are mine and yes. only mine. Yes. That's uh, there is there, another good story uh, from last year. Uh, uh, there, uh, there, there is this um, uh, very close friend of mine, which was called Raffaele Boyano. He has a very nice uh, design firm. Okay. So he, he basically, he has a digital design firm. So he, he cares, his, his company cares about designing great uh, machine to human interactions, okay? Okay. So taking care of all the touch points that the customers have in, in their journey mm -hmm. using your services or your products. Okay, that's all. Okay. So okay. at a given point, for reasons I don't know why, one of the biggest educational publishers in Italy, mm -hmm. asked them for help mm -hmm. uh, about shaping better publishing processes in their six publishing lines, okay? Let's suppose that, so, you know, publishing, educational publishing, have, they, they have uh, a publishing line for mathematics, a publishing line mm -hmm. for uh, art and literature, a uh, publishing line uh, for physics, a publishing line for history of arts, okay, stuff like okay. that. Okay, it's, it's okay. Like probably the categories are comes come come from trivial pursuit, <laughs> something like that. Right. Okay, fine. So uh, they this publisher, this huge publisher was asking Raffaele's company to help them to streamline the publishing process because, for example, there was a, there had been a huge ramp up of, of printing errors, okay, which were basically costing them lots of money, especially if you think about um, high school books for mathematics. If they have errors in the exercises, then you end up having tons of students angry with the professors <laughs> and the professors right. not, not renewing the adoption of the book for the next year. I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem. They, basically, I discovered that this market is regulated by one huge batch of orders by the beginning of the, of the school, school year. 
and then mm. they don't sell anything else for the rest of the year. So basically, if they fail one season, they they're uh, they, they they're I mean they're done for that year. And I mean they right. were big, but I mean it's it it hurts. Okay. Right. Okay. It's like being a oh. farmer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and so, um, okay. Uh, Raffaele asked for my help because I know I'm quite fond. I have a soft spot for process streamlining. I love to make things easier and to the workflow to, to flow easily, smoothly. And so he said, okay, I think this is a job for you. And yes, he was right. So we had this call with the director, with the general director of the publishing company. And so we ended up at the point where I and Raffaele had to build a quotation for, for our consultancy. Mm-hmm. Okay, there were six publishing lines, so we decided to have like six exploration workshops with each of them to, mm-hmm. to, to raise and categorize, cluster, and prioritize the issues, the hotspots, and then have a seventh day all together mixed publishing lines to somehow create new guidelines for to fix the issues that were were getting out of the first six days, okay? Okay. So uh, basically, it was like six days plus one working in two people uh, with those publishing lines, and he ended up building. Uh, he, I, I always remember how sophisticated the Excel file that he was using to build this quotation was. It was like they, he has, uh, if you add up one people on this day, then the, 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 the quotation was updated in real time and blah, blah, blah. It was very mm-hmm. sophisticated. Fine. Right. So mm-hmm. he ended up with a, an amount of money, which was the cost. And he decided for a markup to add on top, okay? Like a margin, a margin on top of the cost. Sure. And so there was a quotation like 40, uh, let's say 40, 40, 40,000 euros, okay? Okay. Which was a pretty, I mean, pretty amount of money compared for the Italian market for six days of, 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 of worth of, of work. So, but the point is that I just asked him, hey, but Raf, Raf is the short the nickname for Raffaele. So Raf, what, what is the value for them? Mm. What's, what's the value for them if we really fix all of their problems with the publishing lines and they have an easier way to publish new books, a new edition every year? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. we don't know. And we didn't ask this is a problem, but but he mentioned two things. He the the general director mentioned two details. First, okay, he mentioned the fact that they were basically making that much of money every year in revenues, mm-hmm. which is not the value of the company, which is not the value of, of our action, but it's somehow a proxy, an index that we can use to make some considerations. And also, he mentioned that he really cared about this activity as being a strategical activity. So basically, he okay. was not looking for some 
team building activity, okay? It was not, because it happens to me sometimes that people want to discuss the process, but they want to do it while doing rafting on a, on a, on a river, okay? So <laughs> the point is that, okay, nice, funny, but it's not the point, okay? So right. if it's strategical, then, then the point, the reasoning I, I, I brought Raffaele into is that, was, was that, okay, if it's strategical and they earn, let's say like 40, for 400 millions per year mm-hmm. in revenues, mm-hmm. then maybe we can ask for like uh, 0.01% of their yearly revenue, maybe even less. We can ask mm-hmm. for one part in 10,000 of mm-hmm. their revenues for those six days of working with them. Mm-hmm. And still, if they, they, if they tell us that this activity is not worth even that small percentage of the yearly revenue, maybe that's not that strategical. Right, right, right. So basically, it was a sort of, we were not evaluating the value because we couldn't, but we were mm-hmm. somehow estimating the so it was sort of a, a via negativa, okay? It was yeah. like uh, some sometimes say, well, I don't know if it's worth that amount of money, but if you say it's worth less, then it's not for sure what you mentioned, okay? Right, 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 right. That's cool. So, but still, still, since uh, well, that 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 reasoning for so so brought the estimation of the, the quotation of the project from four forty thousand euros to somehow 100,000 euros, okay? So, which was mm-hmm. basically more than double as much as, as, as more than twice than, than the amount that Raphael estimated in, in the, the first place, quoted, quoted in the first place. So, right. uh, still, no one wants to throw 100,000 euros out of the window uh, mm-hmm. just because we are two idiots trying to make <laughs> So, I mean, trying to hit, uh, make the, I, I don't know, so like, like having the good shot of, the, of their lifetime, okay? Just because, right. oh, yes, I trust you. Yeah, 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 we're friends. No, I mean, right. that, the point is that basically we could be not able to deliver, okay? And we had right. to acknowledge this risk for the customer. Right. Okay, cool. So, we decided to do, to propose this. I I said, okay, the price is 100,000 euros, but but we will deliver the first day, the first of the six workshops for free. Mm -hmm. So that you may evaluate first and with your eyes, what's the result that we will be delivering at the end of the day with a single publishing line Mm -hmm. so that you can assess whether we are able to facilitate the, the work for of, of so many people, whether mm-hmm. the design of the workshop is meant to extract real data, if the report is readable and useful, and if we basically we are creating the value that you are looking for. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you like the first day, then you will be somehow enabling all the rest of the workshops and pay us for the full amount of, of, of the quotation. Okay. Of course. 
Basically, they wanted to meet me to discuss two conditions. First, they said, well, I don't want to work, I don't want, we, we don't want you to work only with the publishers. We want you to work with the, with the, with the, with the, with the authors, but we mm-hmm. want you to work also with the printers. We want you mm-hmm. to have a wider impact. And I said, mm-hmm. that's fine. That's fine. I mean, if I knew I could ask for this, I would have proposed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Second, which is much more juicy, they said, uh, well, one day to evaluate if you're an idiot or not, it's not enough. <laughs> We want two days. And I basically said, okay, two days for free. The opportunity cost for us is too high. But listen to me. Basically, if that budget we assume is linearly distributed on the seven workshops, six Mm -hmm. plus one, then Mm -hmm. for two workshops, any amount of money less than two parts out of seven of the whole budget Mm-hmm. will be somehow the lossy enough for us mm-hmm. for you to know that we are letting you evaluate us for for not the same amount of money. Do you follow me? So yeah, basically yeah, I'm yeah. saying, if I ask you for two parts out of seven and then you give up, then yes. basically we are getting out of the same performance, which is not a test. It's basically right. a smaller smaller budget for a smaller project which is the same performance so anything less than that amount will be worth a testing condition for for us okay and so Mm -hmm. if we make that amount of money much much lower like so uh, seven parts one seventh of one hundred thousand it's like uh let's say uh, 13 euro, 13,000 euros. So we ask for the first two days, we just ask for 5,000 euros, sort of. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fine, which okay. is basically we're saying, you pay 5,000 euros for the first test and you get two publishing lines done. Mm-hmm. But if you like the way we, have, we had two publishing lines done, mm-hmm. then you know for sure that we you now you know everything you know that mm-hmm. we work you know that we work with two different sets of people blah blah blah, mm-hmm. blah. and so you can unlock the rest right they they accepted they accepted having discussed the impact by including the printers and discussing the risk by mm. somehow asking for one more day to tell whether we were idiots or not right. but but uh-huh. They, the key point is that they never discuss the price. Right, right. They never discuss the price. We delivered those six workshops plus one. They paid 100,000 euros. And then we were, we were so happy. And they were so happy. Then yep. uh, the point is that people, I mean, knowledge workers, we always assume that they will discuss price to make it, the lowest possible, right. but that's not true. Right. As long as you are able to make the value visible, not like in the market for lemons, or mm-hmm. the risk reduced or removed mm-hmm. as they perceive it, mm-hmm. then they will not discuss the price. This is my right. clear experience in the last 10, 12 years. Yes, I, I agree with you. What, what I found interesting with this uh, uh, this dynamic approach of what it is you're trying to do 
is that I've I've been you know sometimes I've been just tweeting out some ideas as to how people can um, extract value from negotiation by focusing entirely on the value generation. And I had a, a customer just last week. Uh, they were you know th- these guys were just in the business of selling something that they called uh, commodities, right? So I you know they're like oh Ace you know you know looking at some of the stuff you're talking about you know, how to turn a commodity into a luxury, but I don't think it applies to us. I said, okay, why does it not apply to you? He goes, well, you know, what we do, everybody else can do. I said, okay, let me give you a story of why your approach to just the way you framed your problem is is, is going to be bad for you. Because if you look at it as a commodity, there's no way your customer will ever look at it as a luxury. And I'll give you a clear example. I said, think about the, the, the cheapest commodity you could think of as a pair of shoes, but then think about how much Nike will charge you for a pair of shoes that Michael Jordan wore. And they'll charge you $500 for it, yet it's a pair of shoes. It still probably costs them almost the exact same amount as one of the regular shoes will cost them. But because they put Michael Jordan's checkmark on it and they put a couple of extra features here and there, they can convince you that that's a luxury shoe that you should buy for your kid who's going to play basketball. Yet, they're in the commodity business. They're selling shoes just like Fila and Adidas and, I don't know, 15 other brands. Somehow, they managed to convince you that their version of that same commodity is priced as a luxury. Similarly, you could look at something like Starbucks. Coffee's coffee's coffee, yet somehow <laughs> Starbucks convinced you to pay $5 where everybody else charges you $1.50, right? So the problem in almost all these cases is just sort of what you and I are discovering here, is that sometimes the company themselves don't understand how to tell the story of value creation to themselves. And if you can't convince yourself that what you're doing is valuable, then there's very little hope of you convincing your customer that what you're trading in is in, is, is beyond commodities. I always tell people, you either trade uh, commodities or you traffic in luxuries. The question is, how do you value the, 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 the framing of the reference of what it is you're trying to do? How do you reduce the risk and uncertainty of the person you're trying to sell to so that they feel like, because remember, people will pay you extra. If you put their mind at ease, it is such a difficult thing for people to grasp. It is so simple when they're on the other side of the table that, hey, here's a big project. Your entire business depends on this being delivered and it's stressing you out and you're not able to sleep at night. Let me deal with this. Don't worry about it. As soon as you do that for them, they stop talking about price. They're like, okay, yeah, great. It's You can do that? Yes. How do I know you can do that? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you the first prototype five days before. So you still have time in case I don't deliver. You can go and get somebody else to do it for you, so you're okay. All of a sudden, like you said, we don't talk price anymore. We talk value, and uh, and more. And nine out of ten p- cases that I've done this with with people and companies, I've been able to convince them that if you, first of all, look at what it is you're trying to achieve as a perspective of, of creating a luxury good that somebody's willing to pay a premium for. And and to most people, when they hear the word luxury, they automatically think Ferrari and Rolex and all that. That's not what it is. Luxury just means that you can command a premium profit margin on whatever it is you're selling. You could sell a bottle of water to a dying thirsty king in a desert, and you could sell that bottle of water for $1,000, and it would be considered a luxury good because you bought it for 50 cents, right? It's, it's, it's the commanding of the premium that you could put on top of it that allows yeah. people to really understand the value proposition of it. So what I want to do with you now, since we've really synchronized our, our thought patterns here, what are these eight... Uh, principles of extreme contracts that you've come up with. Let's just explore these out and a little example of each one and how they all tie together, I think will be very beneficial for our listeners. <laughs> I love this thing because I was 
getting ready with the list because I would have proposed you to, to read the list. So the funny thing, for the first one, it's a very well-known one in this context is skin in the game. So yes. basically, if we care about negotiating, that's because we care about a result that we cannot reach alone, okay? Yes. So yes. negotiation is about even when we are somehow we negotiate with ourselves but basically the point is that we have to make decisions with someone okay mm-hmm. and then if we have to collaborate then it will make sense to long for collaboration <laughs> so <laughs> if we want healthy collaborations we can't do without all parts skin in the game yes if agreed. even one person if even one person or organization involved in collaboration doesn't feel the pain of failure or the benefit of success the collaboration itself will be doomed and yep. will rely on good faith only mm-hmm. if a project fails everybody should suffer from that failure not just one party and if a project is a success everybody must get something out of it otherwise yes. the, the feedback loop is open ended Mm-hmm. And collaborations always end up where we have to, let's, it's a precautionary principle. We mm-hmm. have to assume that the collaboration will become the worst that it can get by the rules which are embedded in the agreement. Okay? Yes. Yep. Yep. With you so far. So then, second one is in their shoes. We are usually very good at envisioning the negative consequences and damages of the smallest concessions offered to counterparts we see as mm-hmm. our opponents. Yes. But we are also usually very bad at realizing what their fears and their needs are. Yep. And if yep. we are to get even the smallest chance of understanding their point of view, we must get in their shoes. And so yep. the point is that what I did with the publishing, the publishing company or the advertising company is getting in their shoes and trying to address their fears and their needs, not my fears and my needs, Excellent. which is somehow using my fears and my needs as the constraints of the agreement, but not the goal. Okay. So yes. It's like, say, yep. I want to fix their problems by not earning less than this. Right, 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 right. Okay? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 for an engineer, <laughs> I'm an engineer, and I know, my, no, no, I know my people. For an engineer, since the information there, it's close, closely the same, the problem is the same. But from a human point of view, in the real world, mm-hmm. this is a Copernican shift. Putting their problems front center is much better than putting your own problem front center. Yes. And, yes. and all the parties' expectations are an incredible resource. They are the true north of the negotiation. They provide clues on what to give and what to keep without hurting trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can give risk reduction without giving money. I didn't, Agreed. in the two examples that I told you, I mm-hmm. didn't apply any discount to my first evaluation. I only addressed their perception of the risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we must understand and fix our counterpart's problem while maximizing the value of the agreement for us. That's yep. the point. Yep. yep. That's where Michael Driver, Michael Driver, sorry to cut you in there, but Michael Driver calls what you just said uh, extreme empathy, right? If you want good yeah. results, empathize yeah. with the other side as much as you can. And then you can actually get what it is you want. But go on. Yeah, I mean, which is the, basically another way to say that we have to describe the problem in a proper way before we, before we look for a solution. Yes, <laughs> instead yes. of rushing headlong to, into the solution space. Yep. Then, 
talk to the grinder, not the monkey. Uh, all negotiations happen among the pe people, even when they represent entire organizations. And since trust is the key to a successful negotiation, especially in knowledge work, because mm. I can I cannot trust somehow some I mean if I don't trust someone who has to just screw screws mm. in, I don't trust him. I don't trust her. But that's fine. Mm. I mean, have you have you just hammered the nail? Yes or not? But the point is that if I want my kitchen to be redesigned, I have to let you free because otherwise. I'm ending up doing the architect and you just the, the one who draws uh, projects in your in, in AutoCAD, okay? Yep, yep, yep. And instead, I want to trust your knowledge. And since the trust is the key to a successful negotiation, it makes sense to negotiate only with true decision makers. That's the point about mm -hmm. talking to the grinder, not the monkey. We yep. must negotiate only with people in a position to make a real final decisions. In Nassim Taleb's word, Mm -hmm. You should never trust a man who's not free. Right. Okay. So if you're negotiating with someone who's not free to negotiate or whose decisions will be overridden by someone higher in the hierarchy, then you have to assume that ruin is lingering, lingering. So how do you say it's somehow yeah, hiding, lingering. So, yeah. lingering, sorry, lingering uh -huh. somewhere behind the corner. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If negotiating is understanding each other's needs, then every small error in how they will be perceived and communicated by a middle person with no real authority will hinder our chances of success. Next one is value-driven. The value of an agreement is not the party's effort to create it, neither it's the time spent working on it, and it's not found in sweat and pain. A knowledge worker's value is found in address needs and the end-to-end -end customer experience. Our agreements should put needs and impact front center, address them, and never focus on celebrating the sweat of our brows. We don't sell and buy fatigue, but results. Right. Right. So right. Right. I often see this in the arts. I have plenty. I mean, my parents were, uh, my mom was a singer and my father was a bass player. I, got, I grew up in an entourage of musicians, and I always heard most, not all, but most of them complaining about their art not to be acknowledged, uh, their effort to rehearse not to be acknowledged, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, mm -hmm. you should question the way your music is perceived rather than complaining about the fact that your efforts are not perceived. Exactly, exactly. Ethics over rules is the other one. Mm -hmm. It means that ethical behavior is more than what is just legal. Mm -hmm. We care a lot about abiding the law, but mm -hmm. that's not enough. We care about collaborations happening in the narrower space of ethics. Mm -hmm. In complex scenarios, a complicated and fixed set of rules will always fail. And that's mm -hmm. what you observed in software development. You may, you may agree on a fixed scope. You may agree on a budget and a deadline. But then the fixed scope is not so fixed mm -hmm. because every functional requirement is subject to an interpretation which changes along the months. And so what we meant with a functional requirement today could be even if, it, the, te if the text remains the same, the interpretation mm -hmm. of, the, of, the, of those text-based requirement, or even your 
this is a very nerdish uh, detail. Even your UML diagrams can be interpreted in some other way in nine months from now. Okay? Yeah. Yep. So we need to favor agreements allowing to revalidate the quality of the collaboration continuously. Mm-hmm. So it's better, rather than having complicated and fixed set of rules, it's better to have a simple set of rules frequently assessed. Mm-hmm. And a rules field contract won't necessarily be fairer than a more pragmatically iterative assessment of mutual respect. So basically, mm-hmm. when you, I mean, I'm, from, I'm from Europe, I'm from Italy, I would do, finally, a football-based example, okay? So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> when in a, in a football game, um, a player all of a sudden gets injured, okay? Maybe on, on its own, on its own, because it, it has problems to his quadriceps, okay? okay? Fine. Okay. The opponents usually send the ball out just to make this, the game stop, Mm. The player be recovered, substituted, or whatever, and then when the injured player's team can put the ball in again, mm-hmm. they will put it out again just to re- somehow give the ball back to the to to the opposing team. Okay. Yeah. And those are two. Yeah. yeah, sportsmanship, but also, uh, that's I mean, there there's. In no rule of football, of mm-hmm. FIFA football, there is written that you cannot exploit the fact that you got uh, an opponent team's player injured and not playing. Right. So basically right. you are outnumbering them, okay? Yeah. But yep. that's what we expect to happen, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if FIFA could include this rule somehow mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the rules of, FIFA, of international football, it would be mm-hmm. included. But... The problem is that reality of injures, of outnumbering, and of ethics of football are too nuanced to be written down in a series of commas or series of 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 lines of text. Okay, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. basically, how can you trap all the cases that the collaboration with your customer will make you face? You cannot. Right. Reality right. is complex. Contracts are just complicated. And on a on a on a funny note, on a, on a side note, I would mm-hmm. I would I would love to remember one uh, colleague of mine at the university. She was an engineer like me, and she was hired by the National Italian Railway Company to mm-hmm. build Prolog software to evaluate mm-hmm. the correctness and non-conflicting state. Of all the rules they were featuring in their contracts with their employees. Okay? Wow. You yeah. see? You see what I, see I mean? What else okay. is going wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I oh, mean, yeah. come on. Come on. <laughs> so, the point is that with my customers, I prefer to say we do whatever we want, mm-hmm. but our contracts last two weeks. Mm-hmm. And in two weeks, I want to deliver value and I want to get paid. So that mm-hmm. in two weeks, I know if you are willing to pay. If you question value rather than a questioning effort, if I you, you can see if I'm an idiot or not. You can mm-hmm. see if deliver value. You can see if value is deliverable at all. Maybe mm-hmm. we are in a business which is too hard for our knowledge, and it's not your fault and my fault. We're just useless. Yeah, so, yeah, no, it's true. Instead of marrying each other, instead of a wedding, why mm-hmm. don't 
celebrate a mutual rental that can be renewed very mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. I agree. And so uh, another principle is cows in small doses. Uh, this is okay. uh, uh, this is very. Uh, it, we are, I am in the perfect place to to mention this because basically it's about capping the losses. Okay. Yep. Okay. The maximum loss that we can bear is the measure of what we can put at stake. If mm -hmm. an agreement may kill us, we have to take a critical look at ourselves, not at the agreement. We let that agreement be agreed by ourselves. And so if we overlooked the chance to be ruined, we were failing. Okay? Mm. Not Mm -hmm. I mean, we in in agree in knowledge work. We can only let we can only suffer what we let them to 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 the way the way we 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 can only suffer what we what we allow to happen. Okay, that's the point. Yep. Okay? Yep. yep. So uh, in knowledge work, we can readily claim to have everything under control, and even assuming that all the parties are acting in good faith. So we are forced to explore our scenarios coping with chaos in small doses. We cap our losses and we relentlessly make them sustainable, even in the worst case. So let's make the agreement small enough for, for us to survive the blow up of all the, of all the transaction, of the whole transaction, okay? Okay. Uh, last two are optionality. So. I mean, this is, again, very clear in this context. Our management mindset is strongly oriented to planning, and so are our agreements. We strive to foresee the future with unsatisfying results in knowledge work. Mm. And as I read in Antifragile, an underrated substitute for smartness is optionality. If we always uh -huh. have a plan B, or even better, we managed to generate several plan Bs that may, that may end up being even better than plan A. Mm -hmm. And we don't need the perfect plan anymore. We can enjoy our ignorance. And creating yes. alternative collaboration scenarios to create value and keeping them alive as long as possible is a valid alternative to understanding all the details of our collaboration in the future. This is something that I learned many years ago in the agile development. Mm. Agile development of software dictates that you have to postpone, you want to postpone all the decisions as much as you can. Mm. Option thinking is a key in agile software development. Basically, you don't want to go developing all the features in an entangled way so that every feature is dependent on the, fall, on the next one, but you want to develop them as independent features that you can even uh, they activate or activate or replace independently like it was in a do you know the the, the game which is called jenga this is the yes. game where you yeah exactly so every feature should be something that you can slip out or slip in mm. and creative alternative collaboration scenarios is what exactly i told you about when i when i when in my two examples so basically we were saying either with the advertising agency we were saying Either we collaborate for a few days, you don't know how much it will be, and it will be a complete failure, but it's going to be very cheap for you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we are exposing ourselves to the much better scenario in which you earn lots of money, and I'm following you into that earning. Okay? Right, right. 
So basically, we were creating alternative collaboration scenarios to create value. Every, even if it, even if, it, if we had failed the, the tender, it would have created value in the fact that they wouldn't have wasted money on a on a on a losing collaboration, on a failing collaboration. That's value. Mm-hmm. The the mm-hmm. chance not to spend money is value for our customers. Yes, agreed. A penny, a money, a dollar saved is better. Uh, what's that saying? A dollar not spent is a dollar saved, right? Exactly. And so mm-hmm. every time I give, so uh, in the publishing enterprise uh, uh, example, the chance for them to evaluate our collaboration with one or two free or almost free workshops mm-hmm. were basically giving, it, it was giving them the option, the opt out, okay? So the option out of the agreement. Can mm-hmm. you go out without penalty? Yes. When you work with Jacopo, you never have to pay penalties to get out of the agreement. If you're not satisfied, you are a free man in a free world and you can get rid of Jacopo without having to pay any amount of money just because you decided that I'm not for you. Right, 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 right. I agree. I want everybody, me and you, postpone all the critical and irreversible decisions as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Last but not least, this is the last principle: is mm-hmm. customer channel. This is one of the, this is the last one because somehow it, it's one I love, but also it's one I find it hard to explain. So either I get I improve the way I explain it, or mm-hmm. I get rid of it. So okay. uh, in the lean startup environment, uh, it's very well known. Uh, a concept, uh, a tool, which is called Business Model Canvas. Have you ever heard about it? I have not. Okay, but I don't want to make it too too long. The Business Model Canvas is basically a a scheme made of nine blocks Mm -hmm. that their authors propose to help you make clarity in the way you shape your business models, okay? So basically... What is needed from the operation point of view? What is needed from the customer point of view? What are you, where are the revenues are coming from and where the costs are coming from? To, okay. to, to keep it close. Okay, to, be, to, to keep it short. So okay. one of the nine, the nine funding blocks mm-hmm. is called customer channel. So, okay. which is basically the business model canvas asks you to make explicit what the customer channels are in your business model, which are all the ways you can communicate with your customer segments, generating either awareness or evaluation of your products or where what's the physical place or the virtual place in which the transaction happens. What do you do and where do you meet your customers after the selling has happened, okay? So basically, it's like saying that uh, for Netflix, one of the customer channels is the web, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of the experience in Netflix happens on the web, okay? Yep. Fine. So if you take into account this, and especially you take into account that the customer channels may have five phases, like awareness, evaluation, purchase, uh, uh, after selling, and I don't remember the fifth one, but you got the point. Mm-hmm. Then we have to infer that contracts 
are one of the ways, one of the first touch points that the customers have with our value proposition. So okay. basically, they meet us through our proposal, through mm-hmm. our quotations, our contracts, and they get into our, I mean, and they see our marketed values reflected in those agreements. So basically, let's talk about Netflix. Netflix, their payoff is watch anywhere, cancel anytime. I mean, Mm -hmm. watch anywhere refers to the part about having many devices and watching the movies and the series on many devices, which is okay, again. But the second half of their payoff is about canceling anytime. That's a promise about the agreement that we are setting with them, Mm. okay? Mm-hmm. And think if they were somehow betraying the users by saying, no, to cancel the, the, your subscription, you have to send us a fax mm. uh, with your signature two months before the expiry date, because otherwise your agreement will be automatically renewed for one mm-hmm. other year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is basically exactly what other cable TV or satellite TV providers were doing in Italy before Netflix came in. Right, 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 right. We were basically making us users slaves to their service just because there was, there was no other way to, to get it. But, but that made their customer base very fragile. Right, because very happy as to leave. Soon as Netflix kicked in, mm-hmm. we all left they were now forced to make the same conditions right uh, the best part is that uh, there is one service here in Italy called Team Vision Team is the Telecom Italia Mobile which is sorry so it's a streaming video service from the biggest uh, telecom operator okay Mm, okay because in their homepage you see you can cancel anytime I was interested in a series offered by them. I started the subscription process. And in the end, in the end, the very last step, there was a checkbox with like, if you want to unsubscribe, you can unsubscribe anytime by filling out this form and or this other form and this form and blah, 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 blah. So it was like, you can cancel anytime as long as you waste much of your time doing what we need and Netflix doesn't need. So fuck you again. I stayed (laughs) with some other streaming service. The point is that, what's the principle here? The principle is that your contracts should reflect the culture and the values that you advert. Mm. Because otherwise, think about Team Vision service. Basically, the legal department of Team Vision is making all the marketing efforts useless after all the money that I assume they have spent to make all their <laughs> advertising campaigns and blah, 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 blah. So basically I was got, I was caught by their advertising campaign and I was kicked out by their legal department. And the legal mm. department cannot decide the strategy of the company. The legal department should allow and empower the strategy of the company. You see the point? Mm. Yep, yep, of course. No, and this is amazingly crazy that procurement departments and legal departments 
In these scenarios of contracting a negotiation with fixed price contracts and time and material are basically shaping the entire strategy of knowledge work-based companies, like software, huge software companies that keep on assuming, uh, keep on, sorry, keep on hiring outsourcing companies just based on the costs because mm. procurement, procurement departments only have one metric. They only have a KPI, which is based on cost. But in knowledge mm. work, you are a software engineer, you know that the proper, the right developer, which may cost three times as much as another, may be worth 30 times the other. Of course. And so, of course. so you don't want to evaluate the trade-off between cost and value only considering the cost. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, and then it goes back to, to the complexity of the strategy in knowledge work, because the wrong line of code, the wrong tactical decisions made from a developer front in, in the front line, putting writing the software that goes in production, that gets deployed onto the company servers, mm-hmm. may define the strategy and the costs of the company in five years much more than is a knowledge nowadays. Right. You see? Right. So yep. if you if you if you make a very bad architecture because you hire people which is just cheap, mm-hmm. of course. Then of course. you end up having costs which which are unbearable in three or five years. And so mm-hmm. now who's making the strategy? The board? Mm-hmm. The junior developer? Mm-hmm. Or the procurement department? Who's shaping the choices and the cost of the choices that we, the company will be able to do in three or five years? Exactly, exactly. And so since the agreements that we propose are among the first touch points in our customers' experience, then mm-hmm. we have to somehow think that our contracts are a compelling device to interact with our customer segments, delivering our cultures, culture and brand values. And if we want to attract the right customers and collaborators, we have to literally beam our values out to the world. Right. And the agreements that we propose to our customers and collaborations nowadays are affecting the collaborations that we will have tomorrow. Of course. And I see, and I see many, many in my workshops especially, I see many knowledge workers complaining about the fact that they don't find the proper customers, but the proper customers are found when you find the proper customers (laughs) somehow. Because (laughs) proper customers will be talking about your value delivery in the terms that that they will have... Sorry, this is a very complicated statement for me, uh, but the point is that... There will somehow the customers will tell about you in terms that are dependent on the way they experienced you. Okay. Yep. Yep. And the contract is telling a lot. It's setting the rules of that experience. And so the contract is affecting a lot of how they will be telling about you to other potential potential customers. Right. So right. the advertising agency that I told you about, they had friends. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. they told about, ah, there is this Jacopo who helped us a lot. And you know what? The risk of collaborating with him was close to zero. Mm-hmm. And they are at a dinner with friends. Yep. When their friends look for me, they mm-hmm. know that story and not a standard one. 
and they are yep. looking for me mm -hmm. uh, after having heard about the story. And so the risk and the cost for me are much lower. And this, is, yes. this goes back to uh, a key point from, uh, this is a point made by Herb Cohen in his book, You Can Negotiate Anything, which is negotiation is a process, not an event. Right. You right, don't right, sit right. at the table and you start negotiating. You start negotiating with your next customer, even when you, when you, when you record a podcast together with A's and you start telling the, the world, The way, the way you negotiate. Yep, well, I agree. There's, there's many, uh, I think one of the things that makes this uh, process interesting is that this whole idea of negotiations, this whole idea of acquiring businesses, uh, you know, future uh, ref uh, referrals, these aren't skills that are taught. So the only people who I've known that I've actually learned this stuff are people like yourself and me and Mike Driver and a couple of the other guys that I've spoken with who've had to go and do this because otherwise it's not really something that you learn anywhere. Nobody really teaches you how to negotiate. And to most people, the idea of negotiating is somehow a scene from a movie where there's a guy in a bazaar and they're trying to negotiate the price for some, I don't know, uh, trinket. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and they don't, they don't, they, they think, Oh, a negotiation is confrontational and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, that's one small subset of a very large uh, area to uh, explore. And most people don't know how to do this. And a lot of people, it's, it's funny, a lot of people who are in the businesses on the other side of the equation who are making decisions are also not very good at this. So it's not like they're, everybody's walking into it assuming the person that they're dealing with is a professional, competent negotiator. And very, very rarely do you actually meet somebody who's professional, competent, ethical, and a good negotiator. And so if you just take some of the valuable lessons that Jacopo here has been uh, describing along with the lessons that Mike Driver explained in his uh, Boundless uh, episode with us, you can actually automatically stand above the crowd. You're automatically in that 95% percentile group of people who says, okay, I understand that this is a vast field, and as long as I approach it from this point of view, I'm already putting myself in a situation to gain the benefits from doing this. And for most people, I find that once you teach them the mechanics of what's involved and how to frame things, then it comes down to two things. What is your tolerance for risk? Because most people, when they, they talk about, oh, I'm going to charge you $5,000 for this logo, and there's a moment of silence, they can't tolerate that silence. They can't, <laughs> they can't sit yes. there quietly and, and just let that moment seep into the bones of the other person you're speaking to. And so they give up, oh, you know what, for you, uh, for you uh, it won't be $5,000. I'll make it $1,000. And instantly, like you said, you lose credibility because your first price point tells the other person, if you're willing to discount it that heavily, it means that you don't actually know how to price what it is you're selling. It means that you are an amateur, and that's how they get taken advantage of. And so what we're talking about here are the mechanics that you need to, 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 to grasp, your fundamental uh, principles. And then afterwards, it's just the emotional stability and emotional um, maturity to sit quietly, ask for what is valuable to you, and more importantly, have the the ability to get up and walk away and say, okay, I'm trying to uh, negotiate based on value and my counterparty does not see the value. So the first problem is perhaps I didn't explain the value properly. And if you work on making sure that you're always explaining the value as best you can and they still don't get it, then you have to do what Jacobo here is saying is, you know, get up and say, okay, this is not for me. Thank you for your time. Good luck with, with your business. I don't have to really do anything here because I'm not going to take a, a, an unnecessary risk 
for a person who doesn't oh, uh, approach or maybe this. You, you, you. Or maybe you can sell them a collaboration to define their value, which is yeah. something that I end up doing. So I'd be like, okay, fine. You don't know what you are valuable about, but then I can, under, I can, I can help you understand it. So even if I die afterwards and we don't collaborate anymore, <laughs> at least yeah. now you know what you're worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It, it, it's a very fluid process. And like I said, uh, a lot of people have these assumptions that are uh, either from a bad movie or a bad TV show, uh, or it's just that they've never actually had to do this. That's why I always tell people like, one of the best skill sets to acquire is to go work in sales on straight commission. When you work in sales on straight commission, skin in the game is all you have. And if you can't sell based on straight commission, you will not understand the nuances of what it is required to do what it is we've been discussing for the past two hours. And all these rules, and I've also found this other subset of human beings that I've found interesting, which is you meet them, they'll tell you they've read every book on how to negotiate, and they know all the rules and they know all this stuff, and then you put them in the, in, in the room and they can't get anything done. And so that's, that's also an interesting aspect of it. There's, there's this layer of people who are theoretically extremely well-versed, practically and emotionally, they're basically babies. They can't handle anything. They can't, they can't figure out the most basic way to get a conversation started. And I think what, 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 what you know, given your experience and the, and the hardships you've experienced on the first two companies, and you, know, you said you, you spent a year uh, homeless, with, uh, those type of experiences really teach you what works and what doesn't work. And what's interesting is that what you've brought to the table here for our listeners today is the stuff that works, you know it works because you've been doing it. It's not stuff you're theoretically sitting there uh, thinking about saying, oh, I think based on this idea, it should work like this. You're saying, no, I've done this and this has worked. And you've backed it up with stories and you've backed it up with examples and criterias and you, you tried to extract all your lessons for your extreme contract principle from a whole series of different negotiations, a whole series of different ways to create value, a whole series of balancing the risk between uh, party A and party B and managing that tension with the lubricant of uh, reducing, quote unquote, to, to bring it back to the original idea of the shot in the dark. We're saying, yes, it's a dark world out there. But if we look this way, there's at least a little bit of light that can help us make sure we don't step into a pothole, right? Yeah. Perfect. So exactly. uh, having... Having covered your, your extreme uh, contract principles, is there anything, any other topics left that you wish to go over? Well, if you don't have questions, I feel satisfied. Perfect. I, I, mean, like I could talk for customer. hours, but I mean, we have to keep it usable <laughs> for the users at home. Yes. It's, 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 always, a, it's always a restraint of, of, of the bladder, right? It's how much bladder time that you have that you, before you have to go to the washroom, so... Uh, I really appreciate <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your expertise with us. Uh, I will post your uh, your Twitter link obviously in the bio and then um, uh, we will proceed forward from there. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.